Welcome to the World Beyond the Tale, the Page a Day American Gods podcast. I'm your host, James, and today we're reading page 185. Get leaner. Horace is crazy, really, bug-fuck crazy. Spends all his time as a hawk, eats roadkill. What kind of life is that? You've seen Bast, and we're in better shape than most of them. At least we've got a little belief to be going along with. Most of the suckers out there barely have got that. It's like the funeral business. The big guys are coming to buy you up one day, like it or not, because they're bigger and more efficient, and because they work. Fighting's not going to change a damned thing, because we lost this particular battle when we came to this green land a hundred years ago, or a thousand, or ten thousand. We arrived, and America just didn't care that we'd arrived. So we get bought out, or we press on, or we hit the road. So yes, you're right. The storm's coming. Shadow turned onto the street where the houses were, all but one of them dead, their windows blind and boarded. Take the back alley, said Jackal. He backed the hearse up until it was almost touching the double doors at the rear of the house. Ibis opened the hearse in the mortuary doors, and Shadow unbuckled the gurney and pulled it out. The wheeled supports rotated and dropped as they cleared the bumper. He wheeled the gurney to the embalming table. He picked up Lila Goodchild, cradling her in her opaque bag like a sleeping child, and placed her carefully on the table in the chilly mortuary, as if he were afraid to wake her. "'You know, I have a transfer board,' said Jackal. "'You don't have to carry her.' "'Ain't nothing,' said Shadow. He was starting to sound more like Jackal. "'I'm a big guy. It doesn't bother me.' As a kid, Shadow had been small for his age, all elbows and knees. The only photograph of Shadow as a kid that Laura had liked enough to frame showed a serious child with unruly hair and dark eyes standing beside a table, laden high with cakes and cookies. Shadow thought the picture might have been taken at an embassy Christmas party, as he had been dressed in a bow tie and his best clothes as one might dress a doll. He was looking solemnly out at the adult world that surrounded him. They had moved too much, his mother and Shadow, first around Europe from embassy to embassy where his mother had worked as a communicator in the foreign service, transcribing and sending classified telegrams across the world, and then when he was eight years old, back... And that's our page. Jackal's speech is interesting to me because of just how much it reveals. Sure, we get our official confirmation that Bast is the cat, and we get confirmation of my earlier assertion that the hawk a couple of weeks back was Horace, but beyond that, Jackal's already seen the writing on the wall. He knows that for most people, religion is a mugs game. Sure, Jesus does okay, but he's about the only one in America, especially. Since arriving in America, the gods have had to struggle. First, as Mr. Ibis mentioned a bunch of pages ago, it was because there just wasn't a population to be worshipped by. In my research, it was noted in a few places that the numbers could be inaccurate due to the European conquerors not believing indigenous tribes could sustain large populations, so these following numbers are likely to be inaccurate. That said, a lot of the research pointed to there being 2.5 million to 7 million people living in what we now call the United States pre-Columbus. The number could be up to around 18 million, but that is at the high end of most estimates. If the gods arrived early enough, as we're led to believe the Egyptian gods did, it would be really difficult to survive on that amount of worship, as they would have likely all come from a country that was between 1 and 3 million people who essentially all worshipped them. In Egypt, that is. With a gap in both language and cultural touch points, trying to find worshippers a thousand years before anyone else really arrived from across either ocean? That sounds really difficult. Jackal likens the way of faith and worship to the funeral parlor work he and Ibis do. A bigger guy is going to buy you out. Sure, with a smaller funeral home you get the personal touch, but America isn't a country of the personal. It's the cold, faceless corporate entity that greets millions and millions of Americans. Sure, Jesus may be a mashup of Mithra, Ishtar, 
Eoster, and any number of other pre-Christian Messiah figures, but his reach it just can't be beat in America. Walmart, McDonald's, and other similar places aren't popular because they're good at what they do. No onions, guys. Come on. They're popular because they're popular. When they first started, they got popular by being good, sure. But now, all they have to do is have lukewarm fries and a salt patty, and they'll keep selling more and more crap. Similarly, Jesus doesn't have to be good. Words mean whatever you want them to mean. Love thy neighbor, but not that neighbor. It's fine. But I guess I'm deviating off the page here a bit. Jackal ends his speech with an interesting statement. Get bought out, press on, or hit the road. We haven't met any of them yet, but some of the old gods are working with the new gods. Thus, these are the bought-out ones. Others like Wednesday and Nancy press on, and are currently trying to bring war to the new gods. Others like the Jin in Salim's section are on the run. The storm, which I've been thinking of as the coming war between old and new, may not be exactly that, but I still haven't found the shape of it in the novel, at least up to this point. It could be that, but it could also be something larger. Neil put a reality storm in the eighth volume of Sandman as a way of describing a universe-altering event, so perhaps this coming storm is similar to that one. A similar but unrelated event, the issue of Sandman takes place in 1993, as the comic mostly takes place in real time over the seven years between 1989 and 1996 that it was published. I know I do talk about Sandman a lot, but there is an upcoming Sandman connection in about 90 pages, and I cannot wait. But back to the page in question. Other houses on the street are described as dead on this page, and that's definitely a bit of a downgrade from the previous description. So, I'm curious. They already are a house of the dead, the funeral home, and also the, the place where Jackal would have been in ancient Egypt. So, is this a side effect of the Egyptian gods moving in? History tends to place the the decline of Cairo would have been about 30 or 40 years after they supposedly arrived, but they're gods of death and they're from a now-dead religion? I don't know, I could be reaching a bit too far on this one. If anything, it could be a reflection of these gods in America, not more broadly, if not more broadly, in the world. Ibis and Jackal are definitely on the outs, and this is reflected in the rest of their pantheon, abandoning them in various ways, so why wouldn't that also be reflected in their surroundings? The windows are also described as blind, so we're getting a lot of personification surrounding the houses and homes in Cairo. The steps of the funeral home were groaning under Shadow's weight a couple pages back, and that was similarly personified. Shadow's described as cradling Lila's body like a sleeping child, and this is a reflection of a scene that will come later with Shadow himself, I think? It also shows that Shadow is able to treat the dead with respect, as he was told he would have to do when he was first eating with Ibis and Jackal together. Shadow once again does show some propensity for blending and falling in with his surroundings. He's able to inhabit the role of Andy Haddock during the great ATM caper. He's able to lie to Maddie about uh, how he got lost in the middle of nowhere and why he needed a car. And even when he was in prison, he adapted and was able to fade into the background as a bit of a survival instinct. I think this all continues to point toward his demigodhood. At the end of the page, we also get more of a look into Shadow's childhood and even his marriage to Laura. It's stated that Laura was the one to frame the photo of child Shadow. Also, Shadow was small for his age and lanky, and from the sounds of the photo, somewhat awkward. Add in that he's in a, at an adult party as a young child, well, I can't imagine this photo really reflects a happy time in Shadow's life. Of course, it could be a memory of a time with his mother, which could be happy, but it also might not be, considering that the dream he had showed her dying while trying to tell Shadow something he wasn't able to hear. 
at least that is if we're supposed to believe that his dream when he was getting beaten by the spook show was more true to life than not. The United States Foreign Service that Shadow's mother worked for is part of the State Department. It was created in 1924 as a way to assign diplomats to other countries, as well as assisting U.S. citizens abroad. Currently, there are about 15,000 members serving in the Foreign Service. And that is a redundant sentence, and I apologize. Shadow and his mother moved around quite a bit at this period in his life. Likely there were people that Shadow may not even have spoken a common language with, so with his mother being the only person he could feasibly associate with, and with her being involved in classified work, he could have had a pretty lonely childhood. We'll have more to talk about it tomorrow, but that's at least how it sounds to me based on this page. I'm not sure if I have to define a telegram, which is mentioned on the page, but a telegram was a message or a series of messages sent by telegraph, which would then be printed and hand-delivered by a delivery company. Western Union was the longest lasting of these, and they were still offered a telegram service up until 2006. If you see an older film where a character receives a clipped message that ends in stop, that's a telegram. There's also singing telegrams, candygrams, and other grams? I don't know. I've got SMS and email. I don't know what these things are. Get in touch with the show at theworldbeyondthetale at gmail.com and on Twitter at worldbeyondpod. Thank you to Julian Granganage for his version of St. James Infirmary Blues, which we use as our theme. And thank you for listening. I'll be back tomorrow with another page, and remember, only the gods are real.